you can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by two guests. One is Martin Gayford, a Spectator regular and one of our most distinguished art critics, and the other is Anthony Gormley, one of our foremost, possibly the foremost, national sculptor. And their book together, a new book, fabulously illustrated, fabulously produced, full of interesting things, is called Shaping the World, Sculpture from Prehistory to Now. It's a big book as it needs to be. And it's a book that's a conversation. Can you tell me, first of all, how a conversation between the two of you, you know, artist and art critic, who you'd think of maybe as natural enemies in the wild, turned into a book? I've never taken that view about artists. I know some critics feel they ought to keep rigidly apart from artists and not have their views contaminated by artists' views. But I think the opposite, which is that artists are really the people who know what's going on in art history. And so I've always assiduously talked to them. And Anthony, I started talking actually about 20 years ago when we first met, and the book was a sort of continuation of a series of conversations we'd had over probably 18, 17 years by the time we started formally doing it. But actually, most of the conversations, the serious conversations happened in the last sort of 18 months, I would say. And it's absolutely Martin who did all the heavy lifting. It was just a huge pleasure, I guess, talking very casually at the studio and just seeing what came up because at the beginning I think we connected over the Renaissance but as we investigated the things that particularly you know led me to become a sculptor you know the the field opened up and kept opening up and for me yeah that question you know when did we start wanting to make things well, takes us back to Australopithecus robustus afarensis and the need in some way to make things beyond function. And right from the beginning, the bilateral symmetry of a hand axe was not simply about getting an edge that would allow you to use this thing as a tool, but gave satisfaction. And the satisfaction came as much from the making in the hand as the feeling in the hand. And I think we just, didn't we? We just took it from there. Yes. Well, I, I, say, I say one of our USPs is that we've included one or two, well, you could call them works, objects created by non-humans up to about one, 1. 1.5, 2 million years ago, but by pre-humans. By Australopithecus, which are our ancestors, but they're proto-sapiens sapiens. I mean, Homo habilis, Homo erectus, I mean, they were extraordinary shapers. And the story of Homo erectus's extension across the whole surface of this globe is extraordinary. How fast and how far our yeah, pre-modern man ancestors went, both in walking and in making. 
Yes, you say in the book, I think you might be quoting Yuval Noah Harari or, or pulling out from the... Anthony, you say something, you think that making things came kind of at the same time as the development of language. No, I would say before, as indeed it seems very clear now that Neanderthal man, so our immediate ancestors, so before Cro-Magnon, they had both the palatal effectivity and the tongue control for speech. They start about yeah, 240,000 years ago. But the fact is, if we look at the earliest shaped objects, they are well before we had the capability of enunciated speech. And I don't think that there's any, um, well, doubt about that. So you say that image making and speech are interconnected. I would just say that it may well be that through touch was the first form of collective communication. And, you know, in my mind, I have this image of a small band of hunter-gathering proto-humans sitting around maybe a fire, maybe a found fire, but passing from hand to hand a shaped stone, for example. Could have been a shaped piece of wood as a form of tactile connectivity. I suppose that's one of our basic contentions or starting points that the forming of bits of stuff into significant shapes and before that maybe just the finding of things that's a fundamental human activity and it carries on from deep in the past right up until now that gives us our chronological range not that we've dealt with this chronologically but you jump have, around uh, superbly yeah. you know at one moment we're looking at a henry moore and the next at a pebble that's half a million years old you know? yeah no but that little stone that is literally it's like two and a half centimeters high that was picked up by an australopithecus and carried enough kilometers for us to know that this was not an accident to a site that we know was inhabited by australopithecus well, the French call it Pierre Figure, but the possibility of imaginatively connecting with a naturally formed thing and finding a connection with it. That's extraordinary, isn't it? What's it called, that stone? Man- Mandelpat or something? The thing about it is that it looks like a face and it still looks like a face. Evidently, it looked like a face, whatever it was, two million years ago. And we can still see that resemblance, which suggests that recognising certain shapes, particularly the human face, is very, very deeply embedded in the way our minds work. That's one of the fundamental motors of all this activity we're talking about. Perhaps I could put in at this stage that Anthony was once an anthropologist and an archaeologist, which gave us a great deal of range. I was more used to dealing with a middle section, you know, the 16th century, the 17th century, 20th century... Europe. So it's been a tremendous journey of exploration for me, both in time and space, doing this book. I'm interested in the different perspectives you bring to it, obviously one as a practitioner, one as a critic, but did you find there were areas where you really disagreed or didn't have the same view and, you know, a productive area of different perspectives? Martin, very resistant to Joseph Boyce, Marcel Duchamp, and probably Tino Segal. Uh, Those were probably three particular 20th and 21st century artists that Martin was prepared to discuss them, but it was very clear that he had little joy. (laughs) 
Well, that's probably fair. I'd, uh, I, I think we, we, yeah, we had a few areas of limited sympathy. I think I, I sensed Anthony was a lot less keen on European Baroque and Bernini than I was. I remember at one stage I suggested we include a, a rather elaborate fountain sculpture from a 16th century Medici palace. And uh, Anthony said, looked at it and said, I think you may get over Renaissance. <laughs> I have enormous respect for Bernini and particularly the marvellous story of the two portraits of Scipione Borghese. It cracked the night before he was about to present it and so he had to start all over again. And now the marble bust, life-size marble bust of this rather, rather fat cardinal and he's got his mouth open, and you can see on the side of his open lips a sort of little bit of spit. Anyway, he, he's a disgusting man, and the portrait sort of manages to convey both his self-importance and his slightly greasiness. And to manage to convey that twice, apparently he stayed up all night and recarved it enough to be able to present the uncracked one to the cardinal. The brilliant thing is that they're still in the Palazzo Borghese, either side of this doorway, and they're utterly brilliant. I mean, there isn't a sculptor of marble that has managed to carry it to the degrees of finesse of Bernini, but at the same time, I think that virtuosity is not the only consideration in deciding an artist's importance. Well, I'll, I'll give you a pass on Bernini, but you're definitely down on Canova. No, Canova didn't get it into the book, which I'm delighted about. I mean, that is sculpture kind of turned into a fridge freezer. <laughs> Actually, we've got an illustration to, to, to illustrate what Anthony doesn't like about it. Um, Oh, have we? I can't remember. What, what, what is it? It's of this rather weird museum entirely full of plaster people in the Veneto, which is his hometown, looking a bit frozen and dead, as you describe. Now, there's a moment, I think, in the 18th century when sculpture, particularly in Europe, sort of just goes white. And that says it all. You know, the fridge-freezer analogy is simply the fact that there's this thing about power, purity and whiteness that doesn't matter whether it, if it's Carrara marble it has to be bleached to its uttermost if it's plaster that's fine you know from Torvaldsen's extraordinary own museum in Copenhagen to collections all over you know I'm speaking to you from Norfolk we have a collection of sculpture at Hokum everywhere in the 18th century and early 19th if you liked sculpture you had to have very white statues and I find most of them pretty uninteresting. As you say, it's gone through these great phases and different meanings. If you're talking about prehistory, you know, as you describe a lot of it, it starts with sort of found objects and then it's often got sort of religious or ritual significance. Then, in, you know, it becomes commemorative, a lot of sculpture. And then, I mean, is there a sort of single thread through the history of sculpture that makes sculpture distinctive? Time. Sculpture has always been the art of time that confronts us with, as it were, our own embeddedness in biological time and it trying to somehow infuse geological time with something of the fleetingness and impermanence of human thought and feeling. Yes, a lot of it's to do with making something which lasts, which could be a weak intent that a standing stone or a stone surface such as uh, Stonehenge is an example of sculpture, a monument. I suppose the exception to what Anthony just said is 
performance ritual, which is something which maybe... But it's still involved with time, isn't it? I mean, performance, you may say ritual by being repetitive is about trying to make a single moment last by doing it again and again and again. It's over and then you do, then you do it once more. And uh, that's the way I began to realise that a lot of cultures relate to history. I think one of the strengths of the fact that we've done this thematically rather than historically is that it makes it much easier to incorporate works from cultures who don't think about a succession of styles and a development and uh, stylistically in the way that uh, Western Europeans have probably since classical antiquity, certainly since Pliny, but they think about creating something which is recreated cyclically and keeps on being thus in the present. So we've included some Australian Aborigine sculptures in our last chapter along with mainly 21st and late 20th century work, but they seem to me to fit very well there. That thing that Martin brought up, you know, the way in which sacred, often very large and painted figurative religious icons are paraded during Easter week in Spain, for example, and that as a, in a way, lasting connection with the way that Sanufo mask you know, there are many West African cultures that use highly emotive, figurative sculptures that are worn, integrated into their, I guess, rituals of life and death. And I think the way in which, in the last chapter, we try to reconcile, I suppose, a rising sense in which the art of our time has been accommodated and institutionalised, become in a way, a a cultural industry, has stopped it from, as it were, being integrated into the kind of daily life and rituals of a community. And I think that there are elements now of contemporary art, and if I'm thinking now about Jeremy Deller, he's not actually in the book, but where I think artists are very, very conscious about, in a sense, the removal of sculpture from the experience of every day and want to put it back in the street, you know, somehow in collective space. I was going to say a classic example actually would be some of your own work. You know, I have something like 200 photographs of my children at different ages standing pretending to be the Angel of the North right next to the Angel of the North because my wife's parents live in Northumberland and every time we drive there we stop and you know, and we're not the only people standing next to it with our arms out and our cameras going. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that was my attempt to say, yeah, art doesn't have to just belong in a museum. It can be in the outdoors, in the elements, and in a sense, as much be a conversation with the history of a place and with the weather as it can be, as it were, with our kind of idea about art history. And that's a totemic object. It's sort of going back to pre-modern ideas about how sculpture can be. Can it be a focus for the hopes and fears of a people? It doesn't get graffiti. I was interested in that. No, that is amazing, isn't it? You've got straight into popular culture with that work. I thought it was very interesting during discussion of the North, which there was a lot of in the last month or so, people were using Angel of the North just as a quick symbol for the whole of England above the north of the Humber which is quite remarkable, really. And picking up on another point you were making, I certainly began to realise 
how misleading, as we wrote this, how misleading museums can be, marvellous as they are. And actually quite a lot of our works are from the British Museum or the Louvre or Tate Modern or so forth. But what you often see in, for example, the British Museum is an object which has been wrenched out of its architectural context. For example, a figure which used to be in a niche on the pediment of a temple and also out of its ritual and cultural context. And it changes from being a, an element in a larger whole to being more, something a bit more like, well, a Bernini or a Canova, a, a self-state. We have become, in a way, used to the idea of art being introduced to us in a sea of comparisons. And that seems to basically kind of take the blood out of it and remove it from the life that surrounds it. And I think that that was something that just arose naturally in our discussions, just trying to embed, I guess, the art of sculpture back into the world that surrounded it and see it as a continuum rather than, as it were, deracinated and put into a category kind of slot in a historic narrative or in a cultural narrative. For me, that's the really exciting thing. Can sculpture change its nature from being, in a sense, as you say, you know, through most of its history, certainly in the West, it's been the statue is often a memorial and therefore dealing with the past. And I think that the really exciting thing about, in a way, most of the ritual use of made objects is that they're also about hopes for the future and I guess that's what for me the angel of the north was this was a transitional object between the industrial and the information ages can we use it as a focus for people's pride in themselves and their own faith in what they will do not what they have done and I think that you know that potential of art to be not just in a sense consolation or the kind of image of a golden age or wishful thinking actually be a catalyst for and, and a proof of a future or the potential of a future. And that's really exciting to me. And I think that is the point that I would like to think we're at now, where somehow art generally is becoming much more collectively owned and participated in. Does it feel like there's a sort of jump? I mean, Martin, you make the point in the book where you say something like the avant-garde reveals the past. I mean, I think, Anthony, you've got a point where you say... It all went wrong when the Kurai started to move and we lost the ancient sense of sort of stillness in art. Is there a sort of more direct connection, if you like, between the avant-garde now and the really ancient, ritual, almost prehistoric traditions of art, and that there's been this sort of little diversion in the middle for a few centuries in which it was something else? I'd say it all connects. Because I'm the sort of person who tends naturally to look backward, I mean, I'm historically minded, I tend to approach and understand new art by putting it in the context of what's come before. And if something which was made this year reminds me of Michelangelo or Giotto or cave art or something, well, then I'm more able to appreciate and understand it. I sort of operate uh, retrospectively. But I think a fundamental point about art is that it doesn't advance. That was a misunderstanding. Uh, Gombrich, to an extent, 
made that mistake. You know, the first art we know of is just as good as any art at any point. The cave art is marvellous. It changes, but it doesn't improve. I think that's fundamental. I think all art worth the salt is actually about life and somehow makes you feel more lively. And I think you could say the difficulty with that I might have with a, a lot of the history, certainly of, of Western art, is the degree to which patronage itself began to bend the artistic impulse. And the reason that Michelangelo is, you know, the first modern artist is the fact that he managed to both accept patronage but also bend it to his own particular sensibility. Now, I had this wonderful opportunity via the BBC to look at Paleolithic art across three or four continents. And the extraordinary thing is just how vital that is. And there's no question of patron. There's no question of somehow this being done for power or money. It's actually to do with much, much deeper things, a meditation on being. And in most of the French and Spanish examples of Paleolithic art, that is being in relation to animals that are there in far greater numbers and with far greater success than us that don't have to kill other animals in order to stay warm and to have something to eat. The love that we project onto the auroch, the horse, the deer, our European ancestors, we love those animals. We saw in them a vitality that we admired and wanted for ourselves and had to kill them. Everybody that confronts that work recognises it is the art of the purest kind. And you could say that art got involved with power and with money. If you're putting up a sarsen or something, though, you're erecting a henge or putting up a moile. That requires some sort of organisation. Is power not involved in that? I think Rapa Nui is a very particular story, isn't it? An entire culture whose statuophilia resulted in deforestation and final kind of collapse of society. I do believe the Jared Diamond kind of scenario on Easter Island. And I agree, the relationship of, I suppose, ancestor cult generally is a form of power and compliance to, I suppose, a cosmology. Maybe I'm more kind of kindly to forms of obligation that have maybe an idea about continuity than I am about temporal power for its own sake. And I think that, you know, what characterises the Maui of Rapa Nui is, I think, absolutely a wish for continuity and an understanding about, in a way, one's responsibilities to one's ancestors and therefore to one's children. Well, to put in other words, a footnote in praise of the... <laughs> or a mitigation of the, of the patron. I, I think uh, patrons uh, from time to time force artists to do things which artists hadn't thought of, but which were in fact rather a good idea. For example, Michelangelo definitely didn't want to paint the Sistine ceiling, and he did it, forced to do it by Julius II. Most of us, admittedly it's not a work of in three dimensions, but most of us would agree that was probably quite a good idea. So the artist's internal dynamics not necessarily 
So you think artists left to their own devices can often go off the rails and it's necessary for there to be a nice ceiling or anyway, a structure that gives them a clear kind of frame of activity. I don't know. It's a really interesting question that the degree to which art is always a product of opportunity. It's interesting. Opportunity on the one hand and then absolute determination and will on the other you know, the Sistine Chapel is an extraordinary... I mean, I think he probably just decided once he started that he had to finish. Yes, and he got interested in the project after a few months. I was going to pick up on what you were saying about life. My trouble with Duchamp is connected with the fact that uh, most of it looks like a philosophical demonstration to me rather than an actual living product of imagination and creative thought. That's precisely my worry about it. Yeah, I mean, I think you can't ignore the large glass. It's such an extraordinary sort of, you could say, you know, a bit like the 1915 general theory of relativity. It's one of those extraordinary bits of stuff that combines, in a sense, the mechanical age, the alchemical age, and an attitude to sexuality and role-playing that is undeniable. I think that that work alone would, for me... Well, he had his moments, I'll acknowledge. Uh, that. But I think more when he allowed himself to be a painter, actually, which he sort of is there. Well, actually, you did mention... I mean, because it's such a, a live issue still, the question of public statuary, and they took that you mentioned you know, just now, Michelangelo and Pope Julius, because you, you say this is sort of early BLM, you know, iconoclasm, 500 years ago. Well, it's certainly true that statues have often been, as Anthony said, I think they're about lightning conductors for political feelings. And occasionally, a really good one's gone west. And my favourite example of that is the nine-foot-high seated bronze statue of Julius II, which Michelangelo spent very nearly as long making as he did making the David which he'd done just before in Florence. He spent 18 months, nearly two years on this thing. And it was to go over the door of San Petronio's central church in Bologna, which Pope Julius had just conquered by force and ejected the ruling family in the previous regime. So it was an emblem of conquest and it survived for about two years. We don't even know what it looked like, but it was unquestionably a great masterpiece. As, as soon as Julius lost Bologna, the inhabitants pulled it down, smashed it to pieces, melted it down, and used the bronze to make a cannon. The opposite story to the Achilles at the bottom of Hyde Park, on Hyde Park Corner, that was made out of the cannons of Sebastopol. <laughs> I didn't know that. The moral of that is possibly keep the statues that you pull down, at any rate, in case somebody in the future might want them or find them. Yeah, I'm very that. keen that Rhodes in Oxford is just turned round in his plinth. I think this idea that somehow by removing all the Robert E. Lee Confederate statues, you're going to kind of stop social unrest. We have to live with painful bits of our own history, colonial and otherwise. And I think that the idea that by removing roads we somehow kind of accept amnesia about painful bits of white colonialism. I think that subtle gestures of recognition are better. There's a thing in Budapest which we illustrate which is 
called Stalin's Boots, which is a sort of record of a monumental statue of Stalin, which was put up in Hungary on the occasion of his 70th birthday and pulled down a few years afterwards in the 1956 uprising. And actually, these truncated bronze boots are a lot more eloquent and interesting than the photographs of the actual statue of Stalin. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. This huge plinth, which is just occupied by what looks like massive rubber boots, but made out of bronze. There was a pair of feet on the northern embankment of the Thames, not far from Cheney Walk, that had somewhat of the same power, for me anyway. Whose feet were they? I, I think it was Europa, and it was a bronze sculpture that was nicked, probably also just for the metal, you know, late one night. And somehow the poignancy of the remaining feet was maybe more powerful than the original sculpture. Most memorable museum objects are bits and pieces of fallen rulers. There's also... Constantine's feet and odd bits of Constantine lying around on top of the Capitol Hill in Rome, which are very, very eloquent in that form. I was going to say that just from the critical point of view, most of the statues that people want to pull down or not at the moment are of very little apparent artistic interest. And actually what seems to be happening is that the attention is being directed to all these objects which nobody had noticed for maybe a 100 years. Do you think public statuary can be sort of of artistic interest or is the context in which it tends to be produced something that kind of kills that off? There are examples of wonderful public statues. I mean, a lot of these Edwardian military and naval figures and so forth certainly don't seem to be of very much interest. It's it's interesting, isn't it? If you go down Whitehall, how many of those works are works of art? I think the cenotaph is a work of art. There's something extraordinary about its restraint and simplicity. Yes, I'd agree to that. And then I think that Charles I is absolutely the best. I mean, as a piece of sculpture, it's absolutely beautiful, so nuanced, so balanced. But the rest of them, I don't know. know. The other plinths in Trafalgar Square, the only one anyone I would think could... uh paid very much attention to for the last 20 years or more is the fourth plinth, actually. Plinths one to three, I couldn't name who's on them. The only one I can remember is Napier, who was a pretty brutal commander of the Raj armies in India and responsible for a pretty serious massacre. Anyway, I think statues shouldn't be confused with sculpture on the whole. No, but it is quite possible for a statue, even a thoroughly reprehensible political figure, to be a very good work of art. There's a suggestion in the book, I mean, talking about statuary, uh, which is maybe a way to talk about materials. You say, say, I can't remember which one of you says, it's sort of bronze is difficult to work with because it's got so much kind of baggage from statuary. Oh, that was Anthony. I'm I'm a bit of a bronze fan, but uh, but I I don't think of it as a practitioner. I I think it's beautiful stuff myself. It's weighty by nature and tends to sink the art these days that it is it is joined to. I think there are very few people working today who've managed to use bronze effectively. I mean, I think somebody like Bill Woodrow is using it very very. Deftly, I think Giuseppe Pannoni 
you know, recasting found trees in bronze for very particular reasons to, in a way, confound our idea about time again. Very interesting. But I would say that they're the exceptions to the rule. It is often that contemporary sculptor will turn to bronze in order to make something have gravitas and indeed last. But on the whole, it dulls the work. One of the first of your works that I was really aware of was Field. And uh-huh. that use of clay, you know, you obviously got such a sort of connection to clay. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your relationship with clay and where you started to think, you know, this is the stuff. Well, it's interesting. I started from this Duchampian position. I want to use my own body as a found object. I don't want to, as it were, seek out a model. I want to deal with, as it were, life and then taking a moment of lived time out of time as the kind of sculptural conceit. And all of the first sort of 15 years of my sculptural practice was based on making moulds of myself as still as possible. And this became incredibly, in a way, constraining. And after about eight years of doing that exclusively, I just felt I've got to touch the earth. I've got to start, in a way, allowing the trace of touch and the hand to carry. I think it was, you know, a a desire to have a relationship with the material that could carry feeling, feeling, feeling. And uh, I think all of the early attempts with clay were a bit clumsy. And then I realised that I wanted, I didn't want to impose, in a sense, a shape on this material. I just wanted to express our, I think, dependency and connection with earth, with with clay, and uh, realised that you could somehow, simply by a repeated action of forming between the hands, it was very similar to kneading kneading dough to make a to make bread, that form arose, and it was somehow that that I wanted to capture the the actual, just the sense of hand to substance, hand to mass, hand to the, the, the materiality of the earth. The obvious thing was not just, you know, use the earth, but then to do it collectively. So it was sort of my return to kind of tribal making. And I haven't found anything better. You know, I made host for the Royal Academy show, which was sort of the untouched equivalent of earth and seawater to the same height as field. That, for me, is still, in a way, a, a testimony of faith in sculpture as the collective art form. One thing about clay is that it's one of the almost universal materials that not quite, but almost all cultures have made things out of clay. I mean, I suppose depends on their access to clay. Probably the Inuit haven't used it, but almost everyone's used it. And some of the earliest objects that we illustrate are made out, formed out of clay. It's uh, it's universal and it's easily formable. Going back to bronze for a moment, I think that's, in defence of bronze, that's one of the points about bronze that almost all cultures have used it, not quite or not. I think the uh, pre-Columbian Americans, for example, but a lot of Eastern cultures have 
Putin's bronze. He goes back very deep in the past. There was a marvellous exhibition about eight years ago at the Royal Academy just called Bronze, which depended on that point that, that you could exhibit 20th century 21st century artists side by side with ancient Greek and ancient Roman ones and on more or less equal terms because some of the Roman works had lasted better actually than more recent ones. Martin, can I ask you, it's maybe unfair to put you on the spot, but as a critic, what do you think is distinctive and important about Anthony's work? How would you sort of slot him into the history of art. It might be in a Should different I way. Should I go away at this point? But I don't want to um, yeah, hamper your um, tr- truth, Martin. Well, I would say it's exactly the qualities which made him such an ideal a conversational and writing partner for the project of this book, which is that his work connects in profound ways with the whole tradition, not just the recent modernist tradition or the 19th century, 20th century Western tradition. It has got roots going deep into the past and to many different places. One thing we haven't discussed, which I think is probably very important to Anthony's career, is his experience as a Buddhist novice. And all of those life cast works uh, seem to me to be to do with meditation and sort of discipline of remaining still and concentrating. What's unique about Anthony in the modern age is he uses very often the human form and he's got all these connections to not just Europe but to everywhere. How about that? That's very generous, Martin. It's nice that you'll be able to sit next to each other in signing cues if they ever come <laughs> without fighting. I think we're probably out of time, but we could have gone on and on. It's an absolutely gripping book, and I'm very grateful for both your time, Anthony Gormley and Martin Gayford. new book is Thank you very much. Shaping the World. Thank you. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed that podcast. While you're here, let me just put in a word for an upcoming event we're very excited about. On December the 1st at 6 o'clock, in the evening online we're going to be hosting an evening with Prue Leith it's a bit of a family affair I'm going to chair it Sam Leith Prue is going to be there in conversation with her niece the pastry chef Peter Leith talking about the book they've written together and the world of food and of course we'll probably mention Bake Off too you can buy tickets for this online event at spectator co uk forward slash Prue hope to see you there